Peter's a beloved character by so many of us because we can relate to his weakness. However, one unsettling truth about Christianity is that Jesus is not content leaving you in your weakness. He will use conviction. He will use discipline. He will use loving confrontation to press our weaknesses out of us. Before the crucifixion, not just in the text that we mentioned in Matthew, but before the crucifixion, Peter was constantly telling Jesus that he was the disciple that loved him the most, that he was the disciple that was the most committed, that he had inspected the lives of the other disciples. And although they were all right among his peers, Peter was number one in his own eyes, almost obnoxiously, constantly pandering to Jesus, letting him know he was his number one man. Nothing makes me nervous like people coming up to me and telling me how much they love me and how committed they are to me. Because when somebody says something so much, it starts to raise questions in your mind. And you know Jesus was annoyed at Peter's constant pandering. So out of exasperation and possibly just to give him a warning to help him stay on course, Jesus finally looks at this blathering, prideful man, and he says, you know what? Tonight, you're going to deny me three times. Not in three months, not in three weeks, not in three days. Tonight, the one that's talking all this stuff in my face, you're going to deny me three times. Peter says, I would never deny you. But in Luke 22, as Jesus is coming out of the judgment hall after being arrested, mocked in the judgment hall, stricken in his face, having his beard plucked out, as they're leading Jesus out of the judgment hall, Jesus is standing there in the same courtyard that Peter's in around the fire, and Jesus gets to hear him say it for the third and final time, no, I swear I don't know him. Now, I found something interesting out. Many of you know, we've mentioned this before, and if you really study your Bible and the history of it, you'll know that uh, the book of Mark is actually Peter's words. Mark was Peter's secretary. Uh, the epistles of the New Testament let us know that Peter was not a learned man. He wasn't educated, so reading and writing wasn't his strong suit. So when he wanted to write something down, and for when time came for him to give his gospel account of the life, ministry, and death of Jesus Christ, Peter used Mark uh, to make the notations to write it down. So when you read Mark's account of Peter's denial of Jesus, what you're really getting is Peter's own words about it. And it's only Mark that says Peter curses. Now, I've heard preachers kind of play with this and, and get on people who like to cuss and try to relate that to Peter. But he wasn't really cursing using profanity or four-letter words like you and I know about. I don't know about you, unless the Holy Spirit restrains me, I can be a professional cusser. It's just, it's just a gift, you know. Oh, look at me like that. God heard you on the way to church this morning when you got cut off. Don't play with me. But it's not that he was cursing, you understand? He was swearing a curse on himself if what he was saying wasn't true. It, it, was, it was something like, I don't know him, and I swear I don't know him. May a curse come upon me if I know him. Or something to the effects, 
in our colloquial terms, something you might understand. I don't know it, and may I be damned if I do. You understand what I'm saying? And Jesus gets to hear him say it. So as Peter says, may I be damned, may I be cursed if I know him, he looks up and he sees Jesus come out of the judgment hall and he looks different coming out than he did going in. His eyes are swollen and bruised. His cheeks are bloody from having his beard plucked out. And at that moment, they lock eyes and Peter realizes that he is not who he claimed to be. And what makes this more miserable for Peter is the promise that he made to Jesus. I will never deny you. I promise you, I will follow you to prison and even to death if, it's, if it so happens to be, but I'll never deny you. None of these other disciples get it. None of the other disciples, they, they don't have it like I do. They don't have what you and I have, Jesus. I love you more than these in the critically acclaimed play, A Man for All Seasons by Robert Bolt, the main character, Thomas More, is heading to a death sentence. He's made a promise, and in order to keep the promise, he, he has to go to a death sentence. It was a complicated scenario that led to it. And he's, he's talking with his daughter, Meg, and Meg is saying, Daddy, please break your promise and, and don't go to the death sentence. And he tells us something amazing. He says, when you make a promise, it's like taking yourself in your own hands like water. If you open your hand and break the promise, you lose yourself. She was saying, Daddy, please stay here with me. Don't die. Don't go to the death sentence. And what he was essentially saying is if I break my promise, part of me will die anyway. Now, this same thing happened to Peter. He had made all of these promises to Jesus, pledging his loyalty and his love. And Peter had built his identity around the fact that he was a man of courage, that he was a man of integrity, and most importantly, that he was the best one among his peers. But at the moment of crisis, the foundation of his life was laid bare and revealed that he was a coward with no integrity at all. And when he realizes it, it guts him. It wounds him with a mortal wound on the inside of his spirit and his soul. Furthermore, it threatened his future because Peter has just invested the last three and a half years in Christian ministry. The plan was for him to go on and become a career Christian minister. But now he's destined to be a wounded and a haunted man because who's going to follow a man that denied the founder of the faith? So he's decided to give up ministry, go back to fishing until Jesus shows up at the beach to prove he is the great physician. In Exodus, God said to Israel, I am the Lord that healeth thee. And many of us have heard that Jesus is the great physician who heals, but this text reveals what kind of physician he is. Not a general practitioner. He's the kind we want to avoid the most. He's a surgeon. The kind who heals by cutting you and opening you up. 
And when he cuts to go inside, he always heals by leading to repentance. Peter's problem was not only did he deny the Lord, he himself was living in denial. He had a wound deep on the inside and he was bleeding, but he couldn't see it. And many of us this morning are in the same condition Peter was in. We are bleeding on the inside in our soul and our spirit. That's what sin does. It causes a wound on the inside and everything may be okay looking on the outside, but you have internal bleeding that you cannot see getting worse and worse and worse going untreated. And if it continues to go untreated, it will destroy you. But Jesus, the surgeon can remove it. And in the text, he removes it in three unique steps. I want to share them with you. Number one, he opens you. Number two, he finds the troubled spot. And number three, he removes it. Number one, he opens you. Every surgeon has a knife. Because if the wound is deep enough, it cannot be healed without a cut. And the cut in the text we read is when Jesus makes Peter face what he did and then take responsibility. So the cut is making him face it and making him take responsibility. Jesus is so cool. Look at how he sets up the scene. Okay. When Peter had denied him, when did he do it? He did it around a fire with burning coals. And there was Jesus there and there was Peter there. And then there was a one question asked three times. So Jesus sets up the same scene. He builds a fire. There's burning coals. Jesus is there. Peter is there. And he's going to ask him one question three times. When Peter comes up to the beach, Jesus looks at him. Now they've had no meaningful interaction since Peter's denied him. And Jesus looks at him and remember, Jesus had told him the day he denied him, you're going to deny me. I'm never going to deny you. I love you more than all these other disciples. Even if they lose their strength and heart and they deny you, I'll never do it. I love you more than these. And watch how Jesus starts the conversation. He says, do you love me more than these? He puts him right back into it. He takes him right back to the moment and he makes him face it. Now, if you really see what Jesus is doing, it's kind of a gracious violence. It's kind of vicious. It's kind of harsh. Jesus is just rubbing his nose in it. Oh, do you love me more than these? Why is Jesus doing this? It kind of makes you squirm. It makes you squeamish to look at it. Why is he doing this? Is Jesus insensitive? No, he's doing surgery. He's making Peter take responsibility and face and own up to what is done. Remember our last conversation when I told you what you were going to do and you swore that you wouldn't look at it. Do you love me more than these? In other words, what Jesus is doing is revealing that true repentance starts where blame shifting stops. I'm going to say it again. True repentance starts where blame shifting stops until you take responsibility for what you have done wrong. You cannot repent rightly. And the best analogy I can give you for this 
is uh, sometimes we go in the mountains or we're at the ranch, there, there's a, a log that has to be moved in the trouble with the logs is not only are they lengthy, but they're heavy. And if you try to cast the log away from you, but you only lift up one side of it and you leave the other on the ground, you can't throw it away from you. It'll go up three inches and come right back down and hit you. You have to get up under the full weight of it. You have to get all the weight on you, and then you can throw it off of you. But when you refuse to take responsibility, or only partial responsibility for what you have done wrong, you've only lifted half the log up off the ground. It's the same with repentance. When, uh, when you say, I know what I did was wrong, but, well, you've only got one part of the log off the ground. And this is so subtle. This will trick you. And, and we've all had this happen to us. You ever get one of those fake apologies? It goes something like this. Somebody says something really hurtful, does something really hurtful, and they, they come to you and they say, I'm sorry if you were offended by what I said. I'm sorry if you were offended by what I did. No, you got half the log up off the ground. It's subtle. It's subtle. What you're really saying when you do that is, I'm sorry that you're such a weak person. I'm sorry that you're so emotionally frail, you can't comprehend my humor or my ability or my greatness. I'm sorry that being around something like me offended you. Maybe you can go deal with that. It's a pity apology. There's no real repentance in it. There's no real sorrow. There's no real desire to change. That's why you, sh you shouldn't repent unless you're sorry. See, a lot of times people say, I'm sorry to placate people. It's a terrible thing to do. It erodes your integrity when you do that. So. If you do that, you're just, you're just lifting up part of the log. Or you hear people all the time say, I know what I did was wrong, but you don't know how I was raised. I know what I did was wrong, but you didn't grow up in the house that I grew up in. I know what I'm doing in my relationship is wrong, but you don't know my spouse. Hear how quiet that one got? All the other ones, you know, there was a good... Got some wise people up in here. So, so I know what I did was wrong, but you don't understand the situation that I was in. And in this society today, you will have no shortage of people that help you get out of this real quick. Oh, you're a victim. It's not your fault. You weren't set up right. You weren't, you weren't built right to do that. It, it, it's not your fault. You are the way you are. But when you do that, you've only got part of the log up off the ground. And in our society, hear me carefully on this. In our society, we only make excuses for people that live at lower levels of humanity. Okay. We make excuses for children because they haven't matured into their full human state of maturity. Okay. Or we make excuses for the mentally challenged because they've got a disability that handicaps them. So if a child does something wrong to you, how mad are you going to get there? You are 45 years old and a four-year-old insulted you seriously. 
Or if a person with a handicap is screaming at you, you're going to get upset, seriously, if they've got a mental handicap? No, because we make excuses for people that are lessened in their ability. By the same token, when you, with your full strength self and your bright mind, make excuses about your behavior, what you're really doing to yourself is lowering your humanity, lessening yourself, lessening the level of what you really are. And so Jesus doesn't allow Peter to do it. He puts him right in the middle of it, right around the same kind of fire, right around the same kind of setting. And he says, do you love me more than these? And the surgeon's first cut, his first move is he makes Peter take responsibility. Number two, the surgeon finds the troubled spot. A surgeon doesn't just cut you to cut you. He cuts you to find out what's really going on deep down in there. A surgeon is not concerned about your symptoms. He wants to know the cause. What's the root cause behind this thing? And so he goes all the way to where the trouble is and he unmasks it. The, step, the second step in repentance is unmasking or naming your sin to both Jesus and yourself. By doing this, it helps you identify the real problem at the root. Notice in the text, Jesus never comments on the individual sins Peter had committed because the sins, the behavioral sins were external. Behavioral sins are like the fruit hanging on the branch. You can see them externally, but every behavioral sin externally flows from an internal root system of sin that is the real problem because you can remove the fruit, but if you don't touch the root, the fruit will always come back. That's why simply modifying your behavior doesn't work because if there's a root system down in your heart, no matter how long you modify the behavior and trim the fruit, it will always come back. So Jesus goes down to see what is the root. So yes, Peter lied. Jesus never mentioned it. Yes, Peter denied the Lord and denied his name. Jesus never mentions it. He's not as concerned about the external. He's more concerned about the root cause of it. And so Jesus frames the question to unmask the real problem. He doesn't just say, do you love me? No. He says, you love me more than these? Now notice what Peter has to do because he's pinned down. He has to admit, I love you. I love you. When in the past, if Jesus had asked Peter this question, he would have gone on and on about how much he loved Jesus more than the other disciples and how qualified and how much more qualified he was. But pinned down, faced with what he really was, having his issues unmasked, Jesus laying everything to bear, Peter has to humble himself. He can't say, I love you more than these. He just has to say, I love you. And Jesus is revealing that the root of Peter's sin is pride. He lied because of pride. He denied the Lord because of pride. The lying and the denial was not the real issue. 
The issue was what was growing in his heart. It was pride. And Peter's pride had become the idol that he worshipped. And you'll always have to deny Jesus to worship your idols. He'll put you in a position where you have to choose. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that's not a passive commandment. When you set up something else in your life on the throne of your heart, Jesus will always bring you to a moment of confrontation where you have to choose and you have to hear yourself say, either I prefer you or I prefer Jesus. And in that moment, Peter had preferred his pride. What are you preferring instead of Jesus? And Jesus is revealing that the real root of this was Peter's desire to play God and push the real God out of the center of his heart to the margins. And we're reading this, looking at Peter saying, ha ha, shame, shame. But the reality is every time you commit a willful sin, you're denying Jesus. Every time you commit a willful sin, you're pushing Jesus to the margins out of the center of your heart. I'll come to church. I'll praise you. I'll worship you. But tell me what to do with my finances. No, get out of that place of my heart. I'll come to the church. I'll serve. I'll go volunteer and help people. But tell me how to behave with my sexuality. No, get out of that place of my heart. I'll pray. I'll sing praise and worship songs. I'll listen to Christian radio on my way to work. But tell me how to behave with my attitudes and my character and how I talk to people and how I deal with people. No, get out of that place in my heart. I don't want you to be God of that. And the problem with us is everybody wants Jesus to be savior. Nobody wants him to be Lord because Lord means master. Lord means you sit on the throne. Lord means when there is two ways to go and I want to go left and you say go right, I go right because you are Lord. Lord means serving you sometimes makes me do things I do not want to do, but I do them because you're not just my Savior, you are my Lord. Now he's making Peter face this. He's making Peter deal with this and he's wanting you to deal with it too. He's wanting to stir you up on the inside and say, what places of your heart have you not surrendered? Some people worship the idol of their own intelligence. Some people worship the idol of their accomplishments. Some people worship the idol of their comfortability. And anything that threatens them being comfortable gets pushed to the margins. But God will not leave you complacent. God will not leave you comfortable. Every now and then when things are going real good, God will send a storm because he's not content with your faith becoming weak. He's not content with that muscle of faith going into atrophy. Sometimes he will stir up the nest to make you see how you can fly and soar if you have faith in his truth, his word, and his name. Your God is not a God that will leave you alone. His presence will come in your room and wake you up when you desperately need to sleep. His presence won't leave you alone. He'll talk to you about changing things and rearranging things in your life. That's painful and hard. His presence will not leave you alone. But the problem is most of us want a glorified genie, not a God to not a God to, to challenge us, to confront us. 
to push us to change. But he's so loving, if you're really his, he won't leave you alone. I said, if you're really his, he won't leave you alone. If you're really his, you can't get away. If you're really his, like Jonah, you can try to run. And he'll prepare a whale just for you. A whale of a problem to swallow you and take you all the way down until you bend to his will. When you're really his, he won't leave you alone. So Peter has sinned. He's denied the Lord, but Jesus is trying to show him. He's trying to say, this sin is nothing more than just another way you're pushing me out of the center of your heart. Whatever repetitive sin you're dealing with, repetitive, willful sin, whatever sin it is, let's take all the salacious stuff out just for a minute, whatever it is. If it's in your sexuality, if it's in your finances, if it's an anger problem, if it's a drug problem, if you're an addict of some kind, whatever sin it is, unmask it and see it for what it really is. It's just another place you're pushing Jesus out of your heart. That's all it is. That's all it is. So number two, he unmasks it. He reveals it in verse 17. When he asks him the third time, Peter, you love me more than these. The scripture says that he was grieved in the Hebrew. It says he was hurt. The word hurt there. If you look at it in the Greek dictionary, New Testament written in Greek. If you look at it in the Greek dictionary, it's not like the Hebrew. The Hebrew, that word hurt is, um, pierced on the inside, like a knife, just pierced, you know, in your soul. But in the Greek, it's a little different. It's quaking on the inside. There's an earthquake happening on the inside. And really what's happening is the old foundation, the old paradigm. We all have lenses that we look through to see the world in our mind, our paradigm. And Peter's old paradigm was built around pride self-righteousness. I'm righteous. I, in other words, I have right standing. I'm acceptable because I'm better than everybody else. I'm acceptable because I love Jesus more than everybody else. I'm acceptable because I'm the most faithful. I'm acceptable because I'm the most gifted. I'm acceptable because I'm the most committed. I'm acceptable because I'm always here. That was Peter's worldview. And what you see when Jesus asks him the third time and he starts quaking, he starts shaking, not just on the outside, shaking on the inside. Jesus is a liter he's literally eroding the foundation, eroding the paradigm that he had based so much of his life off of before and replacing it with a new paradigm of grace. If grace is not your primary paradigm, you will miss it every time. Grace says, I am more wicked than I even realized. See, we don't like that. We don't like that. Most of us, if you pin us down, we'll say, yeah, I got issues, but generally I'm a pretty good person. God knows my heart. It's the worst thing you can say. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and above all, desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
So an understanding of grace says, I am more wicked than I even realize. Yet, I am more loved and accepted than I could ever understand because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And he proved his love when he went to the cross. My sin was so great and I am so wicked that the God of the world had to die a brutal death for me. But I'm so loved and accepted that he chose to do it so he wouldn't leave or lose me and he'd never have to leave me. Okay. You have to hold the grace paradigm. And what's amazing in the text is that though Jesus, I mean, Jesus is hammering him with this question three times. He won't let it go. Don't you hate it, fellas, when, when you, your wife uh, has you and, uh, you know, she told you to take out the trash in this certain bag and you didn't do it and the bag broke and the trash got all over the kitchen and she's just hammering you with the same thing. Why didn't you use the right bag? Why didn't you use the right bag? Just over, just drilling it down. That's what Jesus is doing. He's just drilling it down. But have you noticed that the whole text is sown with a marvelous thread of grace? First of all, Jesus starts this confrontation by giving Peter a year's salary worth of fish in one day. In other words, you're going to stand here and take this whooping because I've been too good to you. And truthfully, no matter how God convicts you or no matter how he disciplines you, you know you're going to stand there and take it because God's been so good to you. He's been so kind to you. He's been so merciful to you. He's opened up so many doors. He's been good to you when you didn't deserve it. And that's the beautiful part. Listen, that's the beautiful part of the text. Peter is the least deserving of this miracle. And yet God gives it to him. Oh, I can testify about that in my life. There's been times where I was literally the least deserving of the blessing I was praying for. And yet, in spite of the fact that I didn't deserve it, he gave me what I asked for anyway. Have you ever been given a blessing that you know you did not deserve? Has God ever healed a family member when you prayed? When you know you hadn't prayed in two years? Has God ever blessed you with your finances when you know you ain't been tithing right? Has God ever given you a blessing? you did not he just dumps this blessing on him that he did not deserve and then every time he hammers him with the sledgehammer of this question that takes him back to the night that makes him face what he did every time he hits him with it Jesus says something shocking Carla Jesus says okay face it you don't love me more than these none of them denied me you don't love me more than these. None of them cursed and said, may a curse come upon me if I know him. None of them lied. You are not the most loyal. You're the least loyal. You're not the one that's got it all together. You are the one, Peter, that is the most broken. Therefore, feed my sheep. I don't know if you realize what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying to his most broken, busted disciple, I'm about to go back to heaven to see my father. 
And this thing called the bride of Christ, this thing called the church, this thing I gave my life to bring to the earth is going to need a leader. And so as I was looking through all of the disciples, I chose the one that was the most broken, the one that was the most flawed, the one that was the weakest on the inside, the one that didn't have nothing together, the one that didn't even deserve to be standing with me, the one that denied me and said he swore he didn't know me. I want that one. So in the same text, he's making him focus on his failure and then making him focus on his future. Proving to us that no matter how bad the failure has been, God always has a future for you. And that is the power of grace. I don't care how bad it is. I don't care how down you are. I don't care what you've done or who you've done it with. There is always a future in the grace he says he says uh, do you love me more than these and the inference is no I know you don't but feed my sheep be my leader take care of what I gave my life for take care of the most important thing to me I want you to lead it this reminds me of the Old Testament principle of the priesthood God told Moses, we're going to need a high priest. And the high priest is going to represent all of the people before God. And he's going to represent God before all the people. He's going to be the one that does the sacrifices for you for your sin offerings. He's going to be the one that makes the atonements for you. I need a priest. He's going to pray for you, intercede for you. I'm going to speak to him concerning you. So Moses, I want you to go pick a priest. And Moses says, who? And God says, Aaron. Now, it was Aaron, you'll remember, that when Moses was on the mountain for a few days praying in the presence of the Lord, it was Aaron that got the bright idea to take all the earrings and bracelets and gold from the ladies and the people, throw it into the fire, and make a golden calf. And while they were singing and praising this golden calf, Aaron got the idea that maybe everybody should take their clothes off and dance naked in front of the golden calf. Everybody, I mean the old ones and the young ones, they all got naked and they were dancing around the goat. Moses came down there and was so shocked and upset, he threw the word of God down and broke it into pieces. Aaron, what in the hell is wrong with you? I don't know about you, if I was starting a church, you couldn't pay me to hire Aaron or use Aaron. I wouldn't let Aaron bake cookies for the church bake sale. Aaron. And yet when God says it's time to pick a man, a priest, a leader. Moses, I want you to pick Aaron. Why? Why Aaron? Why Peter? Because if you have a big movement, centered around big grace you need a big broken sinner who's been a recipient of that grace himself and you can always tell when you're dealing with somebody who's been a recipient of grace because when everybody else is judging you because of what you've done wrong people 
people that have been a recipient of grace just look down at the floor and hold their lips together because they can't afford to say nothing lest God bring up what they just finished doing. People that have been a recipient of grace don't talk about other folks because when you attempt to be judgmental and you've been a recipient of grace, the Holy Spirit will give you flashbacks of your own mess. Somebody's talking about Helen. You say, I don't know how in the world anybody... Well, you know, nobody's perfect and we all are on a journey and because God just reminded you of that thing that he pulled you out of, that it hadn't been that long to where you were that person in that mess and in that need. It hadn't been that long to where you were in that person calling everybody and their mama trying to get some help from somewhere. It hadn't been that long. But when you don't know that and when grace is not your paradigm. You can have the nerve to be a jacked up mess yourself and walk around and judge other people. Listen, just because you didn't do what I did doesn't mean you didn't do something. And grace understands that my something and your something is all up under the category of sin and it's Jesus blood that covers it all so I have no right to judge you and you have no right to judge me because we're all living up under the power of his grace and it's grace listen it's grace that calls Peter to his future it's grace that calls Peter out of his failure but it was grace that set up the whole confrontation See, grace isn't just this blanket, oh, it's okay, baby. No, no. It's the grace of God that he'll keep wrestling with your stubborn self. It's the grace of God that he'll keep convicting you. It's the grace of God that he'll keep calling you out of those things that are not like him that will end up destroying and eroding your life. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that has been chasing you all of your life. It's the grace of God that hadn't left you alone in your mess. It's the grace of God that woke you up with a song even when you were still drunk from the night before. Been in the club all night, yet you wake up singing a song about Jesus. You know what it is? It's the grace. It's the grace of God that comes into your mind when you're trying to commit sin. It's the grace of God constantly battling in your heart when you're watching things you shouldn't watch or doing things you shouldn't do. It is the grace of God continuing like a battering ram, refusing to leave you where you are. That is the grace of God. And finally, finally, the third time when Jesus heard him, finally, the third time when Jesus sends that sledgehammer of a question in, he started to quake. He started to shake and the foundation was destroyed. The paradigm the root system his dysfunction was flowing from was destroyed. And I started last week talking to you about the blessing of God, the radical, undeserved super catch. Because many times when God is wanting to lead you to another level and lead you to change, he will start the journey with a blessing that makes you unable to deny his power. 
Hey, Peter, <laughs> I know you denied me, but watch this. And he brings in a catch that's a year's salary in one day. I, I know you said you didn't know me, but, but, but watch this. And sometimes when God is really trying to pull you up, sometimes when he's really trying to challenge you and bring you to change, he will start the challenge by reaffirming, proving who he is. And then begin to pull you. Then begin to challenge you, lead you into change. And I just feel this for so many of us, me included. I believe God is pulling us up, leveling us up, going into the deep places and the dark places of our hearts to search out things and pull us up. I believe that pull up for you is starting with blessing, starting with kindness, starting with love. But there's some confrontation between you and God coming. Maybe this service was it. There's some confrontation where the Holy Spirit begins to deal with you in your heart and your mind about some things you need to stop doing, about some root systems in your heart that are giving birth to cyclical behavioral patterns that have not stopped for years. Because although you may have been tending to the fruit of it, trying to cut it back here and there, you never dealt with the root of the issue. And then I believe thirdly, God's shattering some paradigms. Shattering some old mindsets, thought flows from which our thoughts grow and pour out of. And reestablishing us on a firm footing of his grace. Romans 5, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom also we have access to this grace wherein we stand. Look at the foundation this grace wherein we stand. And if the foundation is not grace, it will always erode. If the foundation is not grace, it will always fall apart. If the foundation of your marriage isn't grace, it will always fall apart. If the foundation of your parenting style isn't grace, it will always fall apart. If the foundation of your church isn't grace, it will always fall apart. If the foundation of your departments that you lead or whatever you do at work, if it's not grace, it will always fall apart. God wants to give you that gift. God wants to give you that grace. It is received when we believe what the gospel says about Jesus, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it was done by God for us to pull us out of what sin got us into. And if that's your position, if that's the position of your heart, then maybe you like Peter somebody who knows Jesus, but in several areas are denying him because you don't want to be challenged in those areas of your heart. He loves you enough. He won't stop trying. In order to get to hell, you'll have to climb over him kicking and screaming. He loves you that much. Stand to your feet. I'd like our elders to come. All over the room, would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? If you have a need in your life, if you want God's help with repentance, if you need healing, if you have something going on in your family, if you have a situation and you need prayer for any type of issue or problem, if the message spoke to you today and you want to rededicate your life to God, you want to repent of your sin, if any of that applies to you, I'd like you to please come forward to the front right now. We're going to pray for as many of you as come.
just worship with us? If you need to come, come. Would you sing this with us?
I hear the Lord saying to me to tell someone he's still your father. He's not angry with you. Did you notice in the text, even though possibly one of the most grievous sins that could be committed against Jesus was committed against him personally by Peter. And yet when Jesus shows up, he's not angry with him. I want to tell you, God is not angry with you. I'll say it again. God is not angry with you. We see Jesus in many forms, in many forms in the Gospels. But in this form, he's not a friend. He calls out to them when they're still on the boat and he says something. He says, children, have you caught any fish? When he says children, he's identifying toward them as a father would his children. God said to tell you, he is still your father. He's still your father. Still your father. Number two, he's not angry with you. 
not angry with you. Nothing that has been done has the power to overwhelm the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed. So know that he is your father. Know that he is not angry with you. And I just declare this over you. The grace life begins today. The grace life for you begins today. Not just being a recipient of God's grace, but having a paradigm in your mind of grace. The grace life begins for you today. When I think about him calling them children, it makes me think, it makes me know, it reaffirms to me that he's my father. And as you go home today, I want that to be ringing in your belly, ringing in your spirit, that God is your father. Lift up your hands all over the house. You're more real than the wind in my lungs. We love you, Daddy. You're more real than the ground I'm standing on. Yeah. Your thoughts define me. You're inside of me. You are my reality. God, we lift our hands and we love you. We sing this song to you, O oh Father. We give you the praise. Everybody lift up your voice and say, Abba, I belong to you. Everybody say, Abba. Let me hear you say, Oh, Jesus, we say, Abba. Let's sing that first part together. You're more real than everybody say. You're more real than skin on my bones. Come on, I love to hear you sing. Sing a little louder. Say you're more real than song on my tongue. bring it down just a little bit let me hear the congregation say your thoughts define me or inside of me your inside of say it real big you are mine
day I begin setting the crooked places straight. Today, says the Lord, I begin marking your way and bringing you into alignment. Today, I begin the straightening with my love, my grace, my compassion. I call you forward to your future. I pray the Lord God bless you in your spirit as a recipient of his word. Say this with me, Lord Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me from my wrong. Sit on the throne of my heart again. Every piece of me belongs to you. In Jesus' name. Give the Lord praise all over the house.